be strategic and smart about communications. Figure out in the early days what do you want to communicate. Some companies just don't communicate at all, which is not good. As a founder, you need to find the right balance in communicating enough, but also not too much because it's like one of your strategic tools you have in building a company, but it's also not the only one. Welcome everyone to another episode of Speak Like a CEO, the leading podcast on CEO communications, where it's my job, Oliver Aust, to host exceptional CEOs and founders and talk to them about their internal, external and financial communications. And who could be a better guest today than Christian Mehrmann? He's the founding partner of Cherry Ventures, one of the leading VC companies in Europe. Hi, Christian. Hi, Oliver. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for taking the time and uh, shout out to Garrett, uh, our mutual friend who introduced us. And uh, we had a few of your portfolio companies already in the podcast. So I'm really, really happy that uh, we finally have the chance to talk to you because you're not just a VC, you're obviously a very successful VC, but your personal background is also closely linked to communication. So there are many reasons and many interesting touch points today. So could you tell us a little bit about your personal backstory? Of course. Yeah, happy to do so. So uh, going a bit back in history, uh, I studied business, um, had marketing as a major, um, but that was also next to uh, financial controlling, so just one of the, the majors. Then uh, started at BCG and consulting for three years and then joined Zalando in the early days as CMO. Set it all marketing efforts um, until the IPO. Um, we scaled the company from when I joined of 50 people to 12,000 when I left. So that was quite a ride. And uh, but the largest customers of, of Google and Facebook in Europe at the time, spending 250 million a year on advertising. And um, yeah, so that was a great experience. And then at the time, we started uh, Cherry as an angel fund, um, investing in startups um, that we liked. And then in 2016, decided to do this full time and uh, yeah, enjoying it uh, since then. Wow. I mean, fantastic. There's a lot to unpack. And let's rewind quickly to Zalando because you were hired as the CMO, but I think you weren't hired officially as the CMO yeah. because um, the previous ones maybe didn't work out. Could you could you talk to that a little bit and also how you acquired the skills necessary to run a huge e-commerce company on, on the sort of growth side? Yeah, of course. So the only thing that basically qualified me as a, a CMO was actually having marketing as a major at university, which, to be honest, is not very uh, helpful, actually, <laughs> becoming a CMO. Um, but uh, but Robert and David, the two Zalando founders, were classmates of mine, and, and they had tried out a few different COOs, CMOs that had more experience, and they thought, hey, you know, let's bring in some more senior guys that can help us. But in the end, it never worked out because these guys were missing the hustle um, and really kind of the willingness to make this a huge success. So they said, hey, let's rather hire people that we know that are hungry, maybe not domain experts yet, but they can get there. Right? So that was basically um, how, how this started. And then when I started, uh, as I said, I mean, I had no real clue about online marketing. I mean, what I learned at university in terms of marketing was more like strategic marketing, a little bit of pricing, but not on kind of how, what's CAC, what's CLV, like all of this was absolutely new to me. So uh, how did I start? Uh, a friend of mine recommended me a book called Website Boosting 2.0. Uh, that was a 500-page book, so pretty long. <laughs> and um, to get up to speed, I basically got up in the morning at 5, read in the book until 8, went to the office, worked until probably like 10, then went back home, read again a bit in the book, and, and went went to bed. Right, so that was pretty much how my first three months uh, at Zalando looked like. But um, that helped me 
get up to speed um, next to talking to many experts and, and other CMOs, um, which also helped me a lot in, in quickly getting into this into this topic. Yeah, it's interesting. It chimes with the old adage that, you know, you learn a little and then you execute a lot. And, and it sounds like it was one of these situations, which you know, is just great for, for rapid learning. And um, I wondered, how did you communicate that internally? I mean, you had a team, right? And the team grew. And how did they see you? Were you just honest and say, there's a lot I need to learn? Or did you just try to, um, you know, obviously be confident and, and just execute what you've just learned without going too much detail about your, your background and, and abilities at that stage? Yeah. So look, in the beginning, um, I was also very cautious in, you know, making decisions without having any real background on what you're actually doing there. Right. So um, I led it a bit more to the uh, to the team if it was like super detailed uh, stuff. But what I what I then did is um, we basically assembled a model to plan kind of the next season. So fashion is a very seasonal business. You have uh, big seasons twice a year and it's important to ramp up your marketing spend. Uh, and I built a large model to uh, to model out the different marketing channels with the spend and efficiencies and basically gluing everything together. And, and that wasn't there beforehand. I think that gave me the trust also from the team to understand, okay, look, yeah, maybe he's not the best in uh, SEO yet, but, um, but he clearly <laughs> adds value to the firm, right? And then I think with that kind of gaining trust, um, it, it helped a lot. And then I think, look like after a while you also get into these different topics and, and understand it um and uh, and i would say after three months you're you're pretty much up to speed what, what were your key learnings as cmo of salando in terms of for instance the messaging not just the the technicalities and the data-driven approach you need to apply in, in such a business but the messaging and and the human part of of marketing the creative part yeah yeah look so i think the way we um managed salando in the early days was like very number driven and analytical probably until we started TV advertising, which had always this creative element. You have a TV commercial, which is more, you know, more like art than science. And um, we had a great advertising agency that we worked with, Jung von Matt, probably the best ones here in, in Germany, and, and learned a lot from them. And, and they said, look, yeah, you cannot measure this by numbers. You need creative minds to come up with a great commercial. You know, we, we think uh, or thought that made sense. Um, and then we say, look, we need to define like what does our brand stand for, right? And, uh, and I think that's when you move out of just pure technical online marketing. Uh, and that means like who's your customer, um, which is, I think sometimes as an online company, you're, you're actually pretty far away from your customer, right? So if you have more of like a classical business um, where you have people going into your store, you get a pretty good sense of who's actually my customer. But here, your customer is always further away. You don't see it. And you sometimes tend to believe your customer is pretty much like your average employee, right? Because we were all ordering on Zalando uh, and it was a very young company, average age 27. So you think, oh, okay, this is the classical uh, customer. But then when we did interviews with customers, we saw, oh, they're actually 10, 15 years older. That's our core customer. They're not as fashionable as we thought. They just want to have kind of fashion in a convenient way, right? So I think that's important, understanding your customer. And then, like, have a very clear messaging, right? So in the beginning, it was like every online marketing channel was figuring out, look, what, what is click in the best way, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that's the message that you want to send, right? And uh, in the end, kind of, we then define, look, what, what's our claim? What are our three USPs? And then we said, look, it always needs to be the three USPs everywhere. So this is very... 
um, you know, in order and as you do for a bigger brand. And I think at some point you, you need to get there. Otherwise, your messaging is is completely chaotic and, and, and consumers won't really get what you stand for. Yeah. So, so it sounds, if, if I can sum it up, um, that you move from a more tactical approach, channel driven approach to a way more strategic approach over time yeah. because the budgets grew and obviously you, you, know, you needed to keep up that effectiveness of the marketing. Absolutely. And what would you say were the key quality, the most important thing a CMO needed to be as a leader back then, you know, yeah. probably 10 years ago or so, and today, and, and whether that has changed at all in your, in your experience? Yeah. So I'd say back then, um, it was very important in the early days to be very analytical, get all the numbers, be fast, and make sure kind of your best in class in every marketing channel you have, especially in the online marketing channels, because there also you had a big advantage because all like corporates and incumbents were pretty far away from it. And, and, you know, you could make a big difference in being the best and being more efficient than anyone else. Fast forward 10 years to today, this advantage has almost lapsed, right? Because everyone is now doing online marketing, the tools got more commoditized. So like we had developed our own bidding engine for, for SEM and, and for Facebook and all of that. That's now all standard, right? So everyone has it. And yeah, you can maybe, you know, by being a bit smarter and hustling a bit more, maybe you gain five percentage points, but you're not going to be completely in a different sphere. So I think what's more important now is like a being a bit more creative and in, in defining new channels um, and finding new ways of customer acquisition and be being stronger on brand, right? So make sure early on you have a strong brand, you have a clear messaging um, that can then stand out, right? Because every Google ad looks pretty much the same. And I think you need to find ways to differentiate. Yeah, that's interesting. I agree with that. I think I think now we're moving into an era where it's not just uh, the, the technical knowledge. I think it's technology for sure, but it's also psychology and it's creativity. And you need to bring these together. You know, yeah. what does a modern CMO, let's say it's the chief communicator of the organization, marketing comms, PR, brand, etc., internal comms. I think all of that should be you know, led by one person. So you have to get the synergies of the company speaking with one voice internally and externally. And that requires obviously a leader who's very agile can cover all of these uh, without necessarily being an expert in all of those, but pick the right people, put the right people on the bus and in the right roles and uh, execute like a champion, right? So, and just get the brand out, position the brand, get the message out, be very consistent, messages aligned, and so on, the things you described. I think that's the that's the era and that's the ideal CMO, but probably also the ideal CEO as the, the chief communicator of the company. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. After Zalando, you moved to more traditional business and I was, was just curious, so what were the differences in terms of uh, communications and marketing, uh, if there were any? Yeah. Look, yeah, I moved, after Zalando, uh, I moved to Pekin Kloppenberg, which is Europe's largest uh, offline fashion retailer. Uh, and at the time, kind of, they said, look, we want to become an omni-channel uh, firm, and we believe you could be the one kind of leading us into this era. And at the time, I thought that's that's a compelling challenge, um, having done the online side and now kind of um, combining this. Look, I think it was like an absolutely different setup um and at zalando and like zalando being i'd say similar to any scale up i think you have like very fast decision making um you decide something today you execute tomorrow um you have almost 
like if something works, you don't think in budgets. Right? So we always had a bit the saying of unlimited budgets. I told my team, look, if you discover a marketing channel that works and that's more efficient than the other ones, you can go as long as you reach efficiency levels of the other ones, right? So where kind of the efficiency gain taps out a little bit. But we always said, look, there's unlimited budget if you bring in your revenues and, and the firm grows with that. And that is very different in a corporate, right? So you define your budget once a year, you need to stick to it, whether it makes sense or not. I think you also, in terms of managing the team, you always need to rather over-communicate and always make sure everything, uh, like everyone understands what you're doing, Every, everyone is on board, you need to make sure they're, they're all aligned with what you're trying to do and, and you can't change uh, your strategy like every week or so, right? And it's also not that we did this at, at Zalando, but sometimes, you know, whatever market changes and you say, okay, look, we need to switch gears. Now we move into the other direction. That works in the scale-up. That doesn't work in a corporate, right? So I would say there are kind of <clears throat> fairly uh, fairly big differences in, in how you operate. And and ultimately, to me, it was also pretty clear. I, I very much prefer the, the startup and scale-up way, because it's just more uh, more dynamic, more agile, and in the end, it's also um, you're going to be more successful with with that approach. Yeah, I, I agree. I like what you said about have an unlimited marketing budget for marketing that works, and I think this yeah. this is such an important principle to understand in, in marketing. And yet, very few companies adhere to that. In, in my experience, what, what's your experience with founders and, and companies? Sort of when you explain that to them, uh, you know, today at Cherry, for instance. Yeah. Look, I'd say most founders get this, right? I think usually you have a founding team of, let's say, on average, two to three founders. That That's pretty much how, how it looks like. You usually have one that is either uh, managing the marketing side or that's at least like has a, has a good understanding for that and uh, and is the, the one that is kind of closest to, to marketing. And and they always get it, right? So you you always start with the equation of, look, what's my CAC? What's my LTV? And, and does it make sense? Where can I go to with my CAC in, in terms of LTV? And um, as a lambda, we always had the rule of, uh, if we acquire a customer, we need to make sure we basically earn that money back within six months. In, in the market of last year, where there was so much capital available, these six months, I would say, weren't probably too... 12 months, sometimes even more. Uh, that's not necessarily healthy because it means you need to pre-finance customers quite significantly. And then also the more you go into the future, you're more dependent on repeat rates and, and that just brings more uh, more uncertainty. So um, I think, yeah, look, all founders get this and um, and and you in, in the early days, you need to figure out like, what's my CAC? Where can I grow? What's my LTV? And then over time, you work on expanding your LTV by like adding more features, more upselling, more cross-selling, like everything depending a bit on your company. Um, and you work on the marketing side, on the CAC side, and getting this down, exploring new channels, and, and growing through that. Yeah, uh, cool. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And, and uh, you know, it's also my experience. Founders usually get it. I think in corporates, as you say, it's a completely different conversation to talk about unlimited marketing budgets and. Um, you already mentioned a few changes that you see, and let's 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 move forward. Let's move to Cherry because I'm yep. very curious. I want to uh, get the opportunity to ask you a few questions about that, obviously. So first of all, I think for context, it'd be good to understand what, how, how did Cherry come about. You, you mentioned you started as an angel investor, but then it became a, a fully fledged VC yep. uh, five six years ago, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we started while we were still at Zalando, and we could kind of sell a few shares in secondary. So I had a bit of cash. 
and then said, hey, why don't we invest this in startups? And at the same time, there were more and more founders coming towards us and said, hey, you have been through kind of the growth of a very successful company. Can't you help us? Um, and then that's basically how we how we got started. Um, by now, uh, we have around 100 companies in the portfolio. So our core stage is seed. So basically, we're usually the first institutional investor in a company. This can be pre-seed or seed. That's always uh, not 100% clearly defined, um, but but uh, it's usually very early. I think that's that's clear. And um, yeah, I mean, we have in this portfolio, we have around nine companies that are above the valuation of, of a billion. Uh, this is always like the, this unicorn thing, a bit of a fancy metric, but obviously one thing that, that people look at. And um, on the one, like we started more from the consumer side, because um, at the time, uh, this was actually the bigger sector in the in the market. Plus, with our Zalando background, that was a little closer to us. So we we started with Flixbus, Auto One, then Flash and Post, Flink, Amboss. This is kind of our B two C portfolio of the bigger ones. And then on the B two B side, um, we've also done a lot. So now we're more like sixty percent B two B and forty percent B two C. And there we have companies like Forto, Infarm, Celerex, Spryker, Rose. And many, many more, and um, yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. I mean, you you see a lot, you learn a lot as an investor, um, and it's also obviously great fun to work with uh, with amazing entrepreneurs. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder, I mean, um, the market, the VC space was very different in Europe, right, when you started out. So well, can you describe a little bit the journey as, as, so from, from your perspective of the whole VC space and where we are today? Yeah, absolutely. So when we when we decided to do um, to do Cherry full time, um, my, my co-founder Philip and I, we were always joking and, and we said, look, yeah, we can still do Cherry full time when we are in, in our 50s, because that was a little bit... <laughs> The view we had on, on investors, like as we knew them from Zalando times and, and, and as it was a bit the picture in the market. But then looking at the US, there were many more um, funds run by former entrepreneurs that at some point turned investors because they felt, hey, there's a lot that I can do to help founders with. And um, and yeah, I collect capital somewhere, but then I, I put it to work and, and, and I add my my advice and experience. And, and we said, look, this is interesting. This doesn't exist in Europe yet. Um, and since we've been on the entrepreneurial side, we, we could do the same, right? And, and add a lot of value here in Europe and, and help founders succeed, especially in the early days. And that's kind of how we started Cherry. And then the question was, where do we get this capital from? Right? And uh, we started actually in, in our network. So uh, we met people for lunch, just telling them, look, what we were thinking about to do next and that we want to raise a fund and then most of them after the lunch conversation they're like ah, okay hey can i give you money can i invest so basically we raised the first 30 million from our network of, of strong european entrepreneurs and then went to institutional investors um like family offices pension funds um, and, and university endowments to to collect more money and um, we've kept the structure since then right so we always have this what we call entrepreneurs a pool um, so lots of european entrepreneurs that are willing to help us and invest in the fund plus these institutional investors that that give us money yeah and, and how operational are you with your founders do you do you uh, sort of become operational and help them setting up everything or are you more of a passive investor yeah and i would say we're, we're pretty hands-on um on the one hand we as, uh, as as investors being on the board of a company, but but I think that's you know board meetings every quarter, so right, so that's uh, that's pretty far away from how uh, from the pace uh, that, that you usually see in a company. So 
we're in WhatsApp, obviously, with all founders and, and have like with some it's weekly calls with others. It's a higher frequency. So we always want to be the, the sparings partner on the side whenever there's anything to help with. Uh, that's kind of the, the daily interactions between the investment team and the founders. And then we've built up a team of uh, what we call strategic resources. So that's, um, for example, two people uh, on the talent side that help our founders recruit the top talent in the early days, because we've seen in the past, and this is usually the biggest issue. So as a founder in the early days, you're super busy figuring out product market fit, getting the first customers on board. And you usually deprioritize a little bit hiring because you always think, ah, yeah, I can do it on the weekend and, or on Friday afternoon. And then, you know, there's something else coming up and you drop it. But we see this makes a very big difference if you have a strong team early on. So we said, look, we're, we're going to have people for you to do this. It's free service. Don't want to charge anything for that. And then we have a head of communications, Catherine. Um, she was the former, uh, former White House reporter for CNN. Uh, and then moved over to Europe and um, and yeah works with us and, and helps founders actually like how to announce their funding rounds, how to announce important news, if it's tricky times, also how to navigate that from a comms perspective. So that's very helpful. And then we have a, a team in finance that helps our companies gearing up for the next round, challenging their business case, helping them raise more funding. So that's all the service that we add on top to the regular interactions that we as, as investors have. Yeah, that's amazing. Catherine is fantastic. I, I totally agree. What are sort of some common advice, pieces of advice you give to founders when it comes to comms and marketing that they may not be aware of and that help them on that journey? Yeah. What is important is like define your brand early on, right? So what does the brand stand for? And maybe even starting with a name, right? Because usually, uh, you know, two founders get together and say, okay, let's do this. Okay, let's come up with a brand. And the, the, this defining the brand name usually takes probably between 30 minutes and a day, which is not a lot of time, to be honest. Right? And then they start, okay, let's use this first as a as a project name in many cases, put it on the deck you raise funding, people get used to the name and you stick with it and move on. At some point, you realize, oops, uh, I actually haven't checked the trademark uh, issues. And then you figure out, or someone starts suing you or you figure out, hey, there's a conflict, so you need to rebrand. And I think doing this a little bit earlier, figuring out, hey, let me check the legal side of my brand. Can I use this brand? Can I use it in Europe? Can I use it in the US? Um, and if there are conflicts, I'd rather just change the name, right? So it's not worth the hassle. I'd say out of the 100 portfolio companies, it's probably 20% that have rebranded at some point. So it's not uh, not uncommon. And it's also not a big issue if you do this early on because you haven't built up a lot of brand equity and value in this. It is more critical if you have to do this at a later point in time. Uh, so... Therefore, we advise everyone to figure this out early on, like what's your brand name, and then you should be fine, right? And then define like what's my claim, what's my USPs, uh, what, what do I stand for, then going over to the customer group, who is my customer group. Um, that obviously kind of gets refined a little bit uh, on the fly because yeah, you learn more, you get more customers, be it B2C or, or B2B, so you can always tweak it a little bit, but I think having a good understanding on this early on 
makes a big difference. Uh, super interesting. And and we looked at this quite in quite a lot of detail um, for the book Message Machine, which has just come out. And Jack and I, uh, the way we phrased this, so we devoted a whole chapter on branding. And the way we phrased this is that founders move from an accidental brand to an intentional brand. Because as you said at the beginning, it's kind of, ah, oh, yeah, this seems to work. Cool. Let's yeah. use it because we have other things to do. And then you go through the whole process. And it's interesting how companies rebrand from the earliest days to like 10 years in, you know, because something comes up or you know photo is part of your portfolio um we had uh, michael wex on the podcast so that they're good reasons often to do that even years on um and even if the brand stays the same the messaging evolves right uh, if you look at uh, sum up for instance beginning with the payment device and becoming more of a financial services company of course messaging has to evolve and sometimes also the brand and i find that i find that super fascinating i have to say and uh it's super interesting to work with founders who are going through this process i'm sure it's the, it's the same experience for you yeah absolutely and i think I think it's um yeah that's it's always there's always individual cases right so uh, with every company it's it's different obviously for a b2b company the brand like changing the brand name is usually less of an issue uh, it's more critical for for a b2c brand and looking back at the zalando days actually at some point we got threatened by a guy who had bought the the brand carlando so writing it with a c in the beginning and uh, he threatened us um, that he's going to sue us and so on. And, and we'd have to pay a million basically to settle this. And, uh, and the million euros at the time for us, we were not that big yet. It was like a lot of money. I mean, it's still a lot of money. And so we were actually preparing already everything to switch by doing this exercise. We actually figured out, wow, that's, <laughs> that's a lot of work to do. Uh? Every communications channel you need to change. Uh? Like, what do you do with people that go still on the old domain? Like, how do you funnel them over all of that, right? So you lose kind of a lot of customers. All the investment that you've done in the brand so far is basically gone. You have to start from scratch. So, yeah, I think for a consumer company, it's it's very important to figure that out early on. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I, I wasn't the same position at EasyJet when we were scaling EasyJet after the IPO very rapidly. And um, the original founder, who was now a minority shareholder after the IPO, but he held the brand easy anything right easy yeah. jet uh, and, and many other things and uh, we ended up in the high court in london arguing about licensing fees so basically he wanted he wanted money more than the one pound he was getting a year was nothing yeah. um and so he sued his own creation and we ended up in the high court and it was pretty absurd and it's pretty distracting of course for a company and it was interesting the ceo at the time said we're not creating any other brand we're going to stick to that. The cost is too high. And I don't want to sort of admit defeat in a way and have a plan B. We're going to go for, we're going to keep this and this is what I'm going to tell everyone. So it ended in a settlement and it's still, the brand is always still around. So it, it, it yeah. was a good ending. But by gosh, that was quite a, a quite a legal battle to talk about, you know, the right brand and, and the licensing fee that comes with it. So um, I hear you. This is this is a fascinating and sometimes pretty brutal area because a lot of money is at stake because brands are valuable, right? They they actually, it, it's it's a strange phenomenon because you can't really touch and taste a brand or, or see it, but yep. they're there. They're, they're the emotional connections we make in our head with a certain company or product. And that's so powerful. So let, let's talk about the VC market. So things are changing. Uh, you already said, you know, they have changed a lot and things certainly don't stand still at the moment. How, so what's what's your take on it going into 2023? Uh, yeah. You know, um, you hear people say, oh, it's doom and gloom. 
you know, it's all pretty terrible and, you know, uh, f raising raising rounds is pretty difficult and others say, well, it's, it's a breather, a bit of correction, but I'm quite positive. So wh where do you stand on this debate? Yeah. Yeah, look, if you look back like in at last year, right? So that was the, the peak of the market where the market just just went into insanity almost, right? So uh, we saw it in the portfolio, our companies raised, they, they had just raised around, then they got a new term sheet three or six months later, double the valuation when you're like, yeah, but the company hasn't doubled in, in time. So it went into pretty crazy spheres. And if you look at kind of amount of funding that went into the market, um, that was an absolute kind of peak level, right? And, and almost kind of doubled from one year to the other. So that has obviously completely stopped now. And, um, and you had players like hedge funds in the last year that were extremely active, then are gone, right? So you had SoftBank, that were very active three, four years ago, but still also active last year, they're basically gone. So if you look at kind of players in the market that fuel the late stage business, there is no one at the moment, right? Because the IPO market uh, is basically closed uh, because uh, tech stocks are down. So from, from that late stage perspective, that the market is really, really, really down. Huh? That means for our companies, you need to extend runway, you need to make sure you have a lot of capital and don't need to raise again immediately if you then move further down uh, on the stage side so going to series a b and then later on to seed where, where we are at i think at a b there's still actually capital available so that's not so much of an issue valuations have come down quite a bit so that's different um but probably they've come back to where they've been three four years ago right so this is also not an absolute disaster and then if you look at seed stage that's where we are um, there is still a lot of capital in the market. Uh, overall, uh, there's a lot of dry powder. That's what we call the money that is committed to the funds, but not invested yet. There is a lot of dry powder in the market. So at some point, it will get invested, but everyone is now cautious and investing in a slower pace that kind of brings the market a little bit down. On the other hand, if you are now a founder and you want to start a new company, it's it's still a great timing, right? So you will raise capital not going to be on, on punitive terms and um, and the, on the talent side there's so much talent available now versus a year ago where you had to fight with everyone also with the big big tech guys yeah, that were paying insane salaries you basically had no chance as a small startup to hire top engineering talent now that has changed so you have actually an advantage there and then looking back in history Many good companies get started in a downturn, right? So Zalando got started uh, after Lehman, Uber, Airbnb in that same phase. So it is actually very good timing to start in a downturn. And then, you know, in two years, the market's going to be better. And then you benefit from that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, uh, I like that assessment. And would you say that the relationship between founders and VCs has shifted over the years? I mean, you pride yourself at Cherry being a founder first, a founder friendly fund yep. and VC. How, how's that changed and how do you think that will develop? Yeah, look, I mean, we've always been founders first. So for us, I think it was always important that the founder is in the center of everything and we do everything to make the, the founder successful, right? So that was the same in the last year, the same this year. So I think that hasn't changed. <clears throat> what has changed a bit is, uh, I think last year in this craziness, um, terms got a little bit out of hand, governance in, in some points got out of hand. I think in Europe, it was still okay. But if you look at, at FTX, for example, that you know had this huge collapse, 
I think that's a pretty clear sign of absolutely failed governance. Uh, and that happens in a market where everyone has, has FOMO. That's how we call it, fear of missing out. So everyone wants to invest. Then the founder says, yeah, but look, I don't want to have a board. That's just too much hassle. And then people said, oh, yeah, okay, but I want to be invested. So I'll, I'll give up on that, right? Which you would have never done two years ago, right? But in last year's market, people did that. Um, and uh, and I think this is all coming a bit back to normal terms, which is healthy and, and good for the overall ecosystem. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And um, so it's more of a balancing out and, and more realistic on both sides. And now, in my view, entrepreneurship is obviously a hugely important driver, and we sometimes forget that in Europe. So how do you value, how do you look at entrepreneurship at more societal level? Yeah, Look, I think entrepreneurship, especially in tech, uh, has been much stronger in the US over the last 20 years, right? So Europe was pretty late to the game. On the other hand, luckily, in the last two or three years, more and more US investors have also understood that uh, there are great tech companies coming out of Europe that are global, for example, Spotify, right? So there's no reason why there shouldn't be more of these companies coming out of Europe. And there are of a bunch of, of good examples. There's some sectors where, for example, Europe's even leading. Gaming, for example, is one where, where there are many great companies coming out of, uh, of Finland, for example. So there are kind of different hubs that have special focuses. And, and overall, Europe has, has caught up quite a bit um, on the market. So and, and many that led to many US funds opening offices in London or elsewhere in Europe and, and focusing much more on the market. So I think Europe has caught up significantly um also maybe last year you know the market went up here significantly but maybe it didn't go as crazy as it was the case in the us right so it's probably still a little bit in a, in a healthier space if you look at um more like kind of governmental view and and, and what are governments doing uh, to support the ecosystem i think we, there's still a lot that can be done, right? Talking about ESOP and VSOP and, and all of this. I think they're, and even like just starting a company is still a hassle in, in Europe. So that there is a lot that can be improved. But I think overall, we, we are on a very good track um, in, in making sure that, that Europe is, is a very important ecosystem on the tech side. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's good that it's it, these developments happen. And I, I hope that uh, entrepreneurship is is sort of capturing more young people as well, that they think, cool, this is really what I want to do with my life and build and create things. And, uh, you know, you, you see a lot of initiatives now focusing on younger people. And I, I really appreciate that. Looking into the future, what's next for you? What's next for Cherry? Yeah, look, we have um, a fairly new fund that we raised kind of early this year. So um, that's a 300 million fund that we're going to invest across Europe into uh, into the best seed companies. So so we're working a lot on that. We're working a lot also with our portfolio, especially in these tougher times, making sure we're there helping them maneuver this crisis. Uh, and yeah, and look, I think... At some point, the market's going to open up again, and uh, everyone's also going to be uh, be be a bit happier. And um, the, the question is just when is that going to be the case? And we expect 2023 to still be a fairly tough year. Could be that this is even the same case in 24. But at that point, then you know it's the market's going to go up again. And um, yeah, look, we're always investing. Also, as an investor, it doesn't make any sense to suddenly stop investing because, uh, as I said earlier, there, there's still great founders starting new companies 
in this market and uh, and we're always on the lookout for for these people yeah cool that, that makes sense and what, what is your most valuable communications advice to young founders out there uh, you know it's always one of the final questions i like to ask because hopefully yeah. it sums up all your wisdom you've gained over the years yeah look <laughs> good question i'd say look kind of the the main advice is be strategic and smart about communications uh, figure out in the early days what do you want to communicate what does your brand stand for what's the message and find the right frequency and, and, and volume of communications. Right? So we sometimes see it, some companies just don't communicate at all, which is not good because uh, then your brand's not out there. You have competitors suddenly that seem to be bigger just because they're communicating more or just doing a much better job there. And I think that's, that's very unfortunate. So you should see this as a very, uh, very good means to, to your ends in the end. And uh, on the other hand, also don't over-communicate. Um, sometimes you see founders like getting a bit carried away by the, the fame they get uh, by being interviewed and you, you do press coverage here, then they invite you somewhere else. That also takes a lot of your time, right? That means you need to prepare for this. You need the, the time there. You need to travel there, all of that versus spending this in, in actually building your company, right? So I think there you need, as a, as a founder, you need to find the right balance in and communicating enough but also not too much because uh, because uh, it's like one of your strategic tools you have in building a company but it's also not the only one uh, and, and i think being smart about this uh, that for sure makes a big difference thank you christian that's that's great advice uh christian Mehrmann, founding partner of cherry thank you for listening and thanks to you christian thanks for sharing your insights yeah thanks for having me it was great